This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay review Mission Control by Burning Airlines. There's a pop sensibility, but a real like sharpness and intelligence. There are some really cool hooks. They're not traditional. Who suffered more? Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I am your host, Tim Minichi. Out. Out. Joining me once again, my co-host, uh, Jason Ziak. Jay, uh, who's going to be the offensive coordinator for the Browns? Tell me right now. Uh, Brad Childress. Brad Childress? Good God, you are screwed. Come on, he's a good offensive coordinator. I guess. See, the trick is you he's get no- you got to get these... Uh, you got to get these washed-up head coaches and get them back to what they do well, which is usually coordinating either offense or defense. So the Bills got, you know, wants that now, and he's a good mm-hmm. defensive coordinator. He's not a good head coach, but nope. I take him as a D coordinator. And we got Jaron, and he did a good job with the defensive coordinating, but he's not a head coach. And why North Turner is still has a job, I can't give you the answer for that. <laughs> That doesn't make any sense. Did you see that, that in they're any keeping universe. him? Yeah. That is astounding this, this, to me. It's astounding to me that he's had three head coaching jobs. And it's astound it's even it's beyond belief. I can't even think of a word that's that that can sum up what I'm trying to say here with this, but th- that team is so good, so talented, and the fact that they can't do anything and he still has a job is just it's mind blowing. Has he been in the playoffs anywhere he's coached? I mean, not in the playoffs, but has he won a playoff oh my game? God, you know, uh, I don't, I, I don't think so. No, I mean, no, he didn't. Did, did maybe with the Redskins, maybe on a fluke, but I know he didn't in San Francisco, and he hasn't. He's been one and done in San Diego. Yeah, if if he even can get there, it's mind blowing. I feel. Well, I'm not going to say that. I feel fat, bad for the fans of San Diego because nobody has it. No, because they live in San. Us, but... They live in San Diego. <laughs> they live in San Diego. Screw them. They can have a. They can have a crappy head coach. They live in San Diego. Yeah. It's a beautiful. They deserve 75, it. 60 degrees every day. I know. Jerks. Yeah, you deserve it. I, I'm a I'm a Bills fan who lives in Ohio. I deserve to go to the playoffs. God damn it! Stop. I'm a Browns fan. Nobody deserves it more than me. No. No. We have suffered more. No, no, no. Come on. Four Super Bowl losses. <sighs> 11 years without a playoff. I, I You've at least been to the playoffs in the last 11 years. I will take four Super Bowl appearances over none in 40 years. You don't want to know my pain. <laughs> 40 years, Tim. Okay. You can count the winning seasons on probably... Two hands in forty years. We're far off topic. We got to get to the night's review because we're gonna we're gonna go into we can go on to this. This is what our normal days are like because because we don't talk about fans anymore. We do we just we just complain about our football. Teams. We just piss and moan about who's got a crappier team to root for. Yes. Who suffered more? It's it's debilitating. It's what it is. What's not debilitating is our band that we're, <laughs> we're listening to tonight or reviewing tonight. And that's Burning Airlines. <laughs> that was the worst segue ever. It is. It was the worst segue ever. But oh. I'm all about the bad segues. Jay, you were familiar with Burning Airlines before we did, we got into this, right? Of course. 
Okay. Here's an interesting tidbit. I actually didn't really listen to this album. I was a big fan of the second album, Identikit, mm-hmm. which came out in 2001, which obviously then we can't review. But I had never really gotten into Mission Control, which we're reviewing. Uh, I don't know why. It seems logical that I would have gone back and listened to this album. They only made two albums. I liked the one. I should have gone back and listened to this. But I never really did. So this was actually a bit of a a, a new experience for me. I think that's part of the reason why I, I chose this was because I just never had delved into this album that much. Were you familiar with this album or were you um, more familiar with the second album? I'm like... With, with both um, these two albums and the Jawbox stuff, I, I, like, recognize the songs, but I don't ever remember, like, intensely listening to them. Like, I've heard them in the periphery. I've had them. They come up. I recognize them, but I don't remember a time. You know, a lot of albums that, you know, that I'm that familiar with. I remember a time of, like, you know, what, a, what year or two or when it came out, listening to it a lot or... You know what I mean? You have memories of like putting it on and listening to it, and I don't have right. any of those memories. And in fact, I I can't tell you why I'm I'm fairly familiar with you know at least half of this album. Um, you know, as I've revisited here, you know, a lot of the riffs and, and the hooks and things seem like I knew them. I could sing along to them, but again, I, I don't remember <laughs> what, what point I ever listened to it um, actively. I guess interesting. I, I, I'm friends with so many people that like it that. It's, I've just well, absorbed it. <laughs> our, our former bandmate and mutual friend Keith is a huge Jay Robbins fan, so he's always pushing the he was always pushing the J, the Jawbox in the nineties. Um, that was where I first heard Jawbox was through him. So I guess it's not surprising. So let's do the history of Burning Airlines. History of the band. Burning Airlines formed in Washington, D.C. in 1997 by former Jawbox vocalist and guitarist Jay Robbins and Bill Barbot. Barbo. 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 Uh, He actually played guitar in Jawbox, but he switched to bass for this band. And then on drums was Peter Moffat who had played with Jay Robbins in the band Government Issue, which was his pre-Jawbox band, and then also played in the band Wool, which we reviewed in... Uh, which was the first actual review for Dig Me Out in season one. Wait, so the drummer? The drummer. In this was band in Wool. was in Wool? Yep. The, the Wool album that we reviewed? Box set or whatever? I believe so, yes. Wow. Okay. So this album that we're reviewing, uh, Mission Control, came out on DeSoto Records in 1999. After its release, Bill Barbo left the band, and Jawbox roadie Mike Harbin joined on bass. The second album, Identikit, came out also on DeSoto Records in 2001. uh, After its release, Benjamin Pape, was added as guitarist, keyboardist, and background vocalist. Uh, After 9-11, the band was trying to decide whether they were going to keep the name for obvious reasons. Um, They stayed together for a short period of time, but then ended up breaking up 
in 2002. Shortly thereafter, J. Robbins started the band Channels, who released an EP uh, in 2006. And then uh, that band broke up, and he started the band Office of Future Plans, who released their debut self-titled album uh, this past year in 2011. There's a Channels album on Skype from 2011, or at least credited to 2011. That's interesting. That's probably supposed to be Office of Future Plans. I don't think that's actually Channels. Because according to the album, the all... hmm. there's two Channels albums on Skype. Skype or Spotify? <laughs> Sorry. Spotify. I was going to say, I didn't know if Skype was moving into that. Uh, I, I get my tech companies with S's and Y's and right. made up names. Confused. I gotcha. Uh, I don't know. Maybe they released an, an album that I didn't know about, but Wikipedia lies me a lot. And Spotify, the years are sometimes off, so, you know. Right. But there are two releases on So, there. I mentioned that I didn't really know this album really well, um, and you said that you knew it, but were not... Was it something that you were putting on all the time? Yeah. It was just you do the songs from Absolutely. hearing them? Since you were able to sit down and focus... On this, yep. were you able to were you able to figure out whether you actually liked it or not? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I liked it a lot, actually. Um, okay, you know, I I'm not the most uh, like I said. I think we're we're both friends with a lot of people that worship Jawbox and really like this band a lot. I, you know, I'm not the most knowledgeable on either I, i'm familiar with them there's things i like but i'm not like the biggest historian in the world of either band you know my impressions are this is a little bit more i think commercial than jawbox at least you know half the album is um it's at least mm-hmm. more um melody oriented and um concise and sometimes simpler and that's the stuff that I really responded to and was most familiar with. Um, so the first, I would say, three or four songs for sure, like all of those, uh, I immediately, you know, as soon as I heard the riffs, uh, recognized them and remembered, remembered them. Um, I was sort of surprised revisiting it how strong the vocals were. You know, it's something that in any of the, the bands he's, he's formed and played in, you know, I, he's the kind of singer where, you know, it's kind of like failure or shiner where you know the music tends to overshadow the vocal sometimes and uh, you know there's some points where the vocal almost seems you know tacked on or just not necessarily you know completely vital to the song because there's so much going on musically but uh i felt like on this stuff uh at least in those first you know first first half of the album uh the vocals were really strong the melodies were really strong and there were some courses on here that are you know, fairly hooky and memorable. Um, you kind of sing along to him, which was pretty cool. And I just had a better appreciation for him as a singer. You know, it sort of surprised me. I think there is a little bit of range there, which is nice. Yeah, obviously, he knows how to where to put his voice and you know what works best. And then it's just the the guitar work is just incredible. You know, it's incredible. It's inspiring and creative. Very creative. Um, it, I would say that. Um, you know, he sort of approaches the guitar as an instrument, you know, to sort of make the sounds that he wants, and not necessarily always as a guitar, if that makes sense. Like he, he sort oh, of, I, I, yeah, I hear what you're saying with that. 
So, it, you know, he just does a lot of stuff, um, you know, making the instrument do what he wants it to do and doesn't always necessarily sound exactly like a guitar. And he either does it through, you know, harmonics or an effect or, you know, some picking technique or something where, you know, he's layering these guitars on and, you know, there's always contrasting parts. Um, he's always sort of orchestrating them and having them play off each other, which is really cool. And, uh, you know, I find, you know, anytime I hear that, you know, I, I get interested. But mixed in with all that, you know, there's some, some pretty good melodies going on, which is which was sort of surprising. You know, I, I always think of, of his stuff as being kind of heady, um, complex, um, almost almost proggy or, you know, progressive in, 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 in a way. Um, obviously there's a, there's a hardcore, you know, element to everything that he does, you know, that being his roots. But I guess I hadn't appreciated until I revisited this just from a, from a melody standpoint, how strong it was. I think he's really in command of his, of his voice and of his guitar playing on this record. I, I, I like you in that I, I was I was aware of Joe Box and I listened to him because other people listened to him, but I wasn't always the biggest fan. I, I think I had a hard time finding a point of entry yeah. with a lot of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't listen to a lot of hardcore or hardly at all, any at all mm-hmm. um, prior to listening to Joe Box. So I didn't really understand where he was coming from with a lot of that. And musically, it takes a while to get comfortable with what they were doing, especially on a lot of the earlier stuff, which is much more aggressive and dissonant. You know, when you get to the later albums that are on the, the major labels, um, or on the major label, they're a bit more palatable. Um, and I don't know if that was a conscious decision because they were on a major label or if it was just the natural evolution of his songwriting. But to me, this sounds like exactly what they were trying to do in the last years of Jawbox, where they were trying to write, like you said, there are some really cool hooks. They're not traditional, but when he screams, you know, making money on the radio yeah. or uh, the taste of bitter fictions, he yeah. sings in um, Pacific 231. Yeah. You know, those are things that just stick in your craw, and you just like, you hear that, and they're sneaky, cool melodies wrapped in these like insanely aggressive songs. Um, whether they're it's vocally he's being super aggressive, or the or the guitars, or the, uh, you know, I mentioned Pacific Two Three One. The drums are just going insane on that song. It's got like a syncopated guitar part yep. um, going on. 
and they're able to keep that all within two or three minutes and do a whole bunch of stuff. This is a really short album for as complex as it is. Um, it almost reminded me of like At the Drive-In, but much more palatable to like a more mainstream audience because you don't have the screaming or the um, um, hyper aggressiveness. You know, there's aggressiveness going on, but it's. I think it's because you know he's such a, he's a producer as yeah, well. He's able yeah. to rein in the noise. It really only gets noisy in a couple parts. Yeah, uh, and it's it's never vocally either, and I know that's one huge. It's abrasive, you know, to a lot of people, and it's kind of a I guess a huge turnoff for some people is when the vocal gets overly aggressive on for some bands, or you know, screaming or whatever, screechy. You know, I know at the drive-in, that's that's one of the things that people don't like about that that band. He doesn't ever do that, at least you know, not on this album. He's always very no. much in control. He enunciates everything very clearly. You know, it's all very precise and well, completely thought out. Um, so it, it, I think in that way, it, it is more approachable. The uh, when I was doing some reading, I found an article. It was uh, on the DCist. There was an interview with Bill Barbo, um, and the person who wrote the article said that, you know, a lot of cool music came out of D.C., obviously, in the in the 80s and 90s, but that this was sort of the perfect combination. This album in particular was the perfect combination of what they're known for in the sense of, like, the Fugazi sound. Yeah. But also takes some of the more, the weirder elements of, like, the D-plan, dismemberment plan, yeah. and puts them... Out front, you know, I don't think this memory plan was, at least on Emergency and I and Change, we're ever going to get confused with the, you know, really early hardcore or like Minor Threat or um, or Fugazi in terms of the, what they were doing. I mean, they were they were going for a kind of a different end of the spectrum in terms of the DC sound, but he sort of Jay Robinson sort of able to take, you know, what those two bands were doing and combine them into a, a band that sounds completely at home playing, you know, with either one of those, but having a totally unique take on what is essentially a very regional sound. It, what's cool, especially about um, this album, which I know it was going on in the Jawbox stuff, but because of the way that they were recorded, you didn't always hear it, is, and, and it's kind of amazing, Bill Barbo's bass... It's really cool, and he wasn't a bass player, <laughs> which is what makes yeah. it interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, Kim Coletta in, in Jawbox had a very distinct bass tone. Mm-hmm. It was, um, I guess you'd say, trebly, mm-hmm. and that's not what this bass is like no. on this record. No. Um, and when you listen to, um, oh god, like Flood of Foreign Capital, the, yeah. the bass guitar, the, the bass drum stuff is just insane.
And, it, and it, it's it, really cool that Jay Robbins allows the bass to to shine on this album in some spots. You know what I mean? Like you would think it, if this is sort of more his project or he's like really you know sort of stepping out out from the band and trying to do something that's a little bit more focused in terms of what his vision is. You could very easily see like you know just guitars everywhere and the bass is just basically underneath it and but there's some times in here where you know he lets the bass kind of shine and it, it really is just you know really nice and just adds another texture there that that adds interest there are two oddball songs for me on this record which really kind of make it in terms of you know if it was just 12 or 13 songs of the same thing it might get a little repetitive yeah but um the first track i wanted to highlight was track eight three sisters Mm -hmm. um it's the only slow song on the record but it has this cool i guess vibrato going on with the guitar uh, and then there's this really sort of um, loose noise part in the middle of the song, which is kind of unusual for Jay Robbins. He didn't do a lot of that in Jawbox. No. no. Well, he doesn't do a lot of it on this album either. Right. So it's really cool that he lets loose for that one song. Yeah. mention was the last track um number 13 dear hillary yeah it's acoustic um it's kind of cool he sings a little bit different um sings like lower i guess you'd say yep it's also kind of creepy which i kind of like yeah especially because it's acoustic yet it's still very dark um and Mm -hmm. yeah creepy sounding it reminded me a lot of failure you know just in terms of how crisp it is and just a mix of you know sort of that darkness and acoustic you know textures dear hillary how many years has it been since you were going off to college and you wrote me a letter Nothing is the same, but I just 
I want to bring up a couple bands, one in particular that that really um, came to mind as I listened to this, and I guess it makes sense that they he would be influenced by them, but had never really occurred to me before. One was uh, Gang of Four. Oh yeah. Um, particularly, Definitely. there's a couple songs here in the in the middle of the album that they have a sort of a, almost a dance drum feel to them. Um, mm-hmm. Some of the syncopated guitar stuff, even the dissonance, you know that that Gang of Four can do sometimes. I know you're way more familiar with them than, than even I am, but um, that was a band that, you know, really I don't think would have come to mind if I had been listening to Jawbox, but on this album became a little bit more clear the influence there maybe. Um, another one was, um, I, again, I, I talked about this uh, with the Rens and, and maybe another band, but I heard Joe Jackson again. And it's particularly that song, uh, Meccano. It sounds a lot like uh, Time by Joe Jackson. Like, that sort of fast... I, I mean, it almost sounds like the same style of song. That's interesting, huh? I have to go back and listen to like that. If you listen to those songs, song. a, 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 you know, A, B, the two songs, I mean, they're really in the same ballpark in terms of, you know, the approach on them. And uh, Is that Bill Barbeau singing in the verses? Because it doesn't sound like Jay Robbins to me. I don't know. That led me to another band which hadn't occurred to me, and I'm not super, fam- you know, totally, you know, familiar with them. In fact, I'm, I'm not, I'm b- barely familiar with them, but... I listened to him a little bit based on, you know, the Joe Jackson thread and just trying to figure out where his early influences may be for the pop side of what he's doing, I, I guess. And that band was, was uh, XTC. And I just went back to mm-hmm. it and was sort of just sampling on some different things. And there were definitely some moments of that band where, again, there's a pop sensibility, but a real, like, sharpness and, and intelligence to it, you know, that he has in the way that he sings and... Um, you know the way he phrases things vocally, because that was always one of the I think fascinating things for me with with him is, you know, vocally he's pretty unique and he, and he has a unique approach to how he sings, and it's always interesting to hear you know try to figure out where, you know, where that where that came from, where he kind of formed that that style, and, and that's a band that, you know, not a hundred percent sure how big a fan he was of them, but you know it, it, it's possible, and there's some similarities there um, um, between the two. It amazes me with a guy like Jay Robbins who does not have a traditional, uh, you know, rock voice. And he doesn't have, I haven't listened to a lot of government issue. So I don't know what he sounded like 
I don't even know if he was singing in that band, but I don't. I think he was. I don't know if he w- was screaming or not. But from a guy who came out of you know the DC hardcore scene, he has a very like really strong control of his voice. Yeah. I mean, he's the opposite of Greg Dooley <laughs> in a lot of ways. <laughs> where it almost it's it's almost unnatural the way he's able to control. You know, with the way he manipulates his voice. And the, the thing that's interesting in reading about this album is that this was recorded live, and they did very little overdubbing. What? Yes. It was recorded two tape live, and a lot of them are first tapes. Oh, my God. Are you serious? Mm-hmm. I would never have guessed that. This totally sounded to me like a... <sighs> wow. Like, you know, it, it sounds roomy, which is nice, but... You know, and it sounds bandish, but I would have never imagined they they play this stuff live. In fact, that one song with the crazy drum part, um, the track two, I can't remember which song it is. But, you know, the the crazy tom part in the verse. It, I was listening to, it, I was like, man, this sounds like two drum parts, and I almost started to think, like, I wonder. Well, if they, there was some. They did do some overdubbing, but he's uh, Bill Barbo said, first of all, they didn't want to record it on to digital because they didn't want the ability to be able to nudge things a microsecond here and there because it would make it sound too stale. Huh. They wanted, he's like, they wanted the imperfections. I'm like, where the hell is there an imperfection? Yeah, I don't, there's no imperfections it, it, on this. They couldn't capture the energy splitting everything up so that they would record it. And it's like, you know, not to say that they didn't over, you know, maybe go back and like, redo a version over and over again but that he's like a lot of those were just the you know jay jay got the guitar right on the first take so we did it that way wow so which kind of blew my mind yeah that's pretty incredible i mean when you listen to this but i mean these again these are guys who had spent 15 years playing in bands non-stop you know they were they had spent actually what the other thing that was interesting in reading was you know, they had a big budget when they were at Warner Brothers, so they were able to go into a studio and make big budget records, and they learned a lot in how to be very economical, so that when they were in those big studios, they weren't trying to waste money just to make a big record. Yeah. So when they were had a very limited budget for DeSoto, they were like, well, we know how to make a very limited budget record. Yeah. So they were able to do it very cheap and you know, with Jay being a, already a producer, he was able to produce the record. Well, you know that they were making. So that's what's amazing is that this is essentially, you know, except for the mix, um, everything was done by the band. You know, they recorded it, um, and then they brought down a guy to to do the mix. And they said they did it over a couple of days, just like nonstop. He would, they would, re, they would mix songs, and they got done over a couple of days. Wow. Which, when you listen to it, I mean, it sounds like this thing was painstakingly put together. Yeah, well, that's which why I'm I... sure in the, in the writing it was. Yeah, I mean, they did their they did their homework, and you know, they arranged the shit out of this stuff beforehand in practice, and obviously got tight as hell. It, it's still really impressive and it it comes it does come through i mean i think um again you know a band that that comes to mind a lot when i when i listen to this and listen to him in general would be failure and the difference between for me the difference between them and failures failure can get almost sterile at times you know it's so produced and so precise that 
it starts to feel mechanical, almost like electronic music. Um, whereas this stuff never does. And I, and obviously I think one of the reasons why is because th- there's performances here that are, that are genuine and, and live, you know, they're not just, you know, all multi-tracked and um, right. There's an energy to it. Um, that you can only get recording that way. I think I've said in the past that I would like to see a band involving Jay Robbins and Ken Andrews together <laughs> and see what will come of that. Oh, I don't know if that's possible. I think they would both just it's probably not possible. stare at each other in a room. They'd have a stare-off. Who's going to have control? Well, you know, Ken Andrews would be like, he would want to layer 17 guitars yeah. and do some huge failure. Well, I guess he's not really doing that anymore. He's, he's mellowed out over the years. But he could he could explain all the weird guitar stuff to Jay Robbins, and Jay Robbins could explain all the weird lyrical stuff. <laughs> he does. That's the other thing. I, I don't know that I've heard a lyricist as obtuse and who crams as many consonants and words into into verses. Maybe since Richie Edwards of the Manic Street Preachers. Yeah. I mean, he's just. They shouldn't work, and yet somehow he's able to get a lot of these, you know, just chunks of words into songs. Mm-hmm. And have them be memorable. I think, yeah. Well, he's got, in, in Crowned, uh, it's, he sings about the candy coronation. I don't even know what the hell he's singing about, <laughs> but yet it, yeah. it works. So for people just learning about this band... Now, if you were going to recommend, you're going to sit, try to give them a, a gateway. Who, who would you think this is for, in terms of um, modern listeners? Because we mentioned at the drive-in, but they haven't been around in a while, and I don't think Mars Volta people are going to be necessarily into this. Well, I know, like, um, I don't know, maybe some of the, like the newer. Um, progressive metal kind of stuff like alt metal like I'm thinking of like Opeth bands like that where it's you know it's technical but yet melodic and you know at times it's sort of right it, it, it goes back and forth between being very dark and and light but it has a lot of uh, you know intricate it's intricate from music standpoint I could see you know people like that are into those kinds of bands, uh, finding some stuff here. I mean, yeah, everything, I mean, he's a huge influence on all of the, the, I guess I'll say post emo stuff that is happening now. Mm-hmm. Um, I can even see people that are in just into like the more rock inside of Foo Fighters, you know, and the more riff guitar riff oriented stuff that the Foo Fighters doing, you know, being into this band, at least this album. Um, I don't know. That's a good. I didn't really think about that, but yeah, the, the the newer Foo Fighters. Well, not newer, but the most recent stuff. I don't know that if you were into um, like Rope, you know uh, that song. I could if you yeah. really, if you love that song, and sort of the you know the just quirkiness and the interesting guitar parts of of that song, but but it's mixed with like a killer hook. You know, I don't think this would be completely foreign. What would you think about, and I'm thinking more of a lyrical comparison, what do we think about like a band like Bad Religion? 
because they're still around. I mean, they're still playing, and they still have a lot of fans. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they're more they're they're musically not as similar, but I feel like I think vocally that oh. he's probably in the ballpark too. I mean, you know, it's not you know it's a punk. Um, you know, it's rooted in hardcore and punk, but you know they bring right. a little bit more of a uh, not a little bit, but quite a bit more of a. I guess pop oriented take on that, but still has edge and still has darkness and still has, you know, some aggr- quite a bit of aggression to it. And you mentioned the uh, XTC and, and Gang of Four. I would put, I guess, uh, the Pixies into that yeah. Yeah. realm, although they're, they're a little bit more on the dismemberment plan side, I think. Yeah, and a lot yeah. of, I mean, obviously you could say Fugazi and all these bands, but it's like if you know those bands, I'm sure you're aware of this, of <laughs> Burning Airlines. All right. Well, I think that does it for Burning Airlines. I'm fin- I'm glad we finally got to a Jay Robbins album because we talked a lot about Jay Robbins here and there in the first season. So, and I'm glad we didn't go with an obvious, you know, Jawbox pick like you know, Novelty or For Your Own Special Sweetheart or something. We went we went a little bit more obscure. No, if we would have reviewed those, we would have gotten like I can't believe you. <laughs> You're not that familiar with that, or I can't, you know, or we'll get something wrong about the history, or yeah, it's just best those, to avoid that. Which we we've learned to to maybe avoid some of the sacred cows of uh, of the '90s, the ones that like people are just fanatical about, and if you get anything wrong or differ from their opinion, they get really pissed. Ergo, jawbreaker. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're gonna go with the ones that you know maybe truly slid underneath the radar a little bit this seems to be a little safer yeah it's a little more fun too. yeah we offend less people that way <laughs> there's that too jay thank you uh once again for joining me on this podcast and um thank you to all of our listeners for listening it's, that's what makes you our listeners because you listen and we appreciate it and uh we're gonna be back next week whether you like it or not and we're gonna have another band to review I'm not sure I'm not sure what's on the schedule for next week but I think it's going to be possibly a listener suggestion so get ready and if you want to make a listener suggestion dig me out podcast at gmail.com send us an email hit us up on twitter facebook all those fun places we'll take your suggestions we'll get to them sometime next year hopefully the world doesn't end in December. That's it. We're out. Thanks everybody for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Want to leave feedback? Join the conversation about this episode. Visit digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed. Uh